Amen. Good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here this morning. Good morning to all of you watching and listening online, and welcome to the fourth week in our mini-series called All Over the Earth. Like we just saw in that video, there is one word that we continually come back to and have focused on week in and week out, and it is the word hope. Hope in the past tense, hope in the future tense, hope in the now. Like I've already preached over the last few weeks, we have hope as Christians because our past is covered by the work of Jesus. Can anyone say amen to that? We have hope because our future is secure, because God the Father has called us, uh, Jesus has saved us, and he's praying for us right now, and that we've been given the presence of the Holy Spirit. Words like justified and glorified and loved, the reality that we have unfettered access to God the Father through Jesus, guaranteed physical resurrection, and the full promise that one day not just our salvation is guaranteed, but all of creation physically and spiritually will be made right. We've celebrated our hope in the past tense. We've celebrated our hope in the future tense. And last week, we celebrated our hope in the now because God is working today. Jesus promised us things like he would never leave us or forsake us. Jesus promised us that the gates of hell would never overcome the church. And Jesus has given us his spirit, whose very presence and character and gifts all prove and all point to God's ongoing work in the now, today, at this moment. Like I said last week, God's mission is ongoing. God's mission cannot be stopped in this church, in your life, or all over the earth. We have hope because God is and going to make all things right. We have hope as Christians because God is working globally and God is working locally. We have hope also as C4 because there is a unique story being unfolded in this season, in this church, at this moment. Like I shared last week, it is a story that God decided in sovereignty to start. A story that he continually invites this church corporately and you personally into. It is a story that we are living in the middle of right now. It is a real documented growing revival. But in the middle of all of that, in the middle of movement and hope and new sites and prayer and sending out and all over the earth, I want to stop for a moment. I want us as a community at the beginning of this ministry year to stop and remind ourselves of our overarching mission as a church, the reason why we actually exist as a local church. Let me put it a different way because of the story we're in right now. What does Christian hope actually produce? What does revival, a real marked ongoing revival, give or make or produce? What are we actually praying that would happen all over the earth? Well, our mission statement actually has the answer to this because our mission statement is rooted in the very last words of Jesus. Now, our mission statement reads like this. We exist in this church to glorify God, we start with him always by enabling people of all ages to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Now, I just need to stop and say this. For many of you who have done church for a long time, or you've been part of our community for a long time, you are already tuning out. Stop it. I need everyone to hear what I'm going to preach today. This is why we exist 
Now, this is rooted in the last words of Jesus, and the last words of Jesus are actually what Jesus promised would happen when hope was given in unique seasons and regular seasons of life. You got a Bible this morning. I'd like you to turn to Matthew 28, a very preached passage in church history, but my prayer for myself and you, my fellow brothers and sisters, our our family this morning, all of you online, is though many of you have heard this passage a thousand times, God by his spirit would make it fresh again today. Are you ready and willing to hear God's word? Yes or no? Good, okay. Matthew 28, 16 reads like this. The 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Now, if you're only reading the Matthean account, you think there's only 11 people. But if you read the rest of the Gospels and the works of Paul, you know that this is not the whole story. Other accounts give us the full picture of this moment. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says this, After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of them, Paul writing, are still living. Some of them have now died. And so here's what happens. Jesus, weeks before, had been crucified and was dead. Then three days later, what happened? He physically rose from the dead. He has multiple encounters with his disciples and others. And then he says at the end of that period, I want you to go to this place. So the whole story is you have the 11. Judas has taken his life. And you have the whole original church, 500 men and women who now gather in and around the Lord Jesus Christ who is risen. And by the way, that moment in itself is hope in the most shocking of terms. 500 people are surrounding the first person in history to truly come back from the dead in a permanent way. All their hopes and fears are alleviated in him standing right there. Jesus is alive. They gather in the spot where he commanded them to gather. It's a sovereign decision. The place that we know from the story, he will literally ascend into heaven from. And it says in verse 17, these words. And when they saw Jesus, they worshiped him. Many people had walked with Jesus for three years. The 11 had, and part of the 500 had. They had tried to understand him, and they saw him cast out demons, and they saw him teach like no other teacher. They saw him heal the sick. Some of them had actually seen him raise people from the dead. And so they thought he was the deal. And then he himself died, and all hope disappeared. And they thought the whole thing was a loss or a sham or something in between. But then he physically, three days later, rises from the dead and they believed. So their story is a mixture of belief and doubt. They rejected him at points. They come back to him. But see, now, now the whole story makes sense. And the response they have to the risen Jesus Christ is they worship him. Now, this is massive, epic, monumental this 500 group of pe- this group of 500 people are worshiping a man they're not just honoring him or respecting him or revering him and i want to remind you of the context all 500 of these people are all good orthodox jewish people who know that there is only one god and it is blasphemy to worship anyone else and they know the penalty for doing this is death And yet they worship Jesus anyway. See, they now all get it. Jesus is who he claimed to be. 
not just a teacher or prophet or rabbi or miracle worker, not just a person with great political unexpected influence, not just another charismatic leader in the line of revolutionaries against Rome, not just another person who will even shape history. No, see, Jesus Christ, who was dead, is now alive. He is the Son of God. Actually, he is God in flesh. This is actually what Jesus' best friend would pen years later in his gospel in the book of John at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, that is Jesus, and, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God in the beginning. He was with God in the beginning. See, Jesus is God, and he's king, and he's the only true king. He is the, let me say this, only incarnation of God in human history. And he's greater than ever every leader and prophet prophet and scientist and thinker and politician and philosopher. He is greater than every person that ever has been born, is being born right now, or will be born. That's why Paul later in the book of Romans said these things. Do you want to become a Christian? Then this is how you do it. If you confess with your mouth out loud that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus is God and Jesus is King, that Jesus is Yahweh and Jesus also has the right to lead your life, and you believe in your heart that God the Father raised him from the dead, you will be, what's the word? Saved. So this is our gospel. It says that when they saw him, they worshipped him. Oh, but some Doubted. You thought I was going to skip that because it was difficult, right? No. I am so glad this is in our text. I am so glad that the Spirit of God included this in the text. Here's why. This word, doubted, is not unbelief in Greek. It is not settled agnosticism. This reads that they are puzzled and fearful and uncertain. Hesitation. It's like too much information too fast. Now, who doubted? Was it the 11? Well, probably not, since if you read the accounts, they've all encountered the risen Jesus by this point, including Thomas, who's called Doubting Thomas, who's now believed. Many of the 500 have not had the same experience as the 11, but no matter who it is, I am so glad that at this most epic point, this turning point in history, the word doubt is expressed. Why? Because we will never have a real, grounded, authentic faith... We will never grow up in our discipleship unless we struggle. It's like getting sick. I remember the first time my seven-year-old, who was now quite a bit older, but when she was four, she got sick. Remember, only child, only grandchild, didn't know what to do with babies. The first time she got sick, I was petrified. I had no clue what to do. And I was reminded, A, it's normal, so I could put the paper bag down, good. But B, I was reminded it was important that my daughter got sick. Because her immune system needed it to build up. It's the same with our faith. If our faith is always guarded and never challenged and never probed and never questioned, it will never be rooted and it will not stand up when life comes at us. We need a deeply authentic, rooted faith so we can authentically call an unrooted world back to a God who loves you, loves me, and loves them. Alistair McGrath, the great theologian, says this, if you're, if you're in this situation, wrestling with doubt will be an important part of your Christian life. You'll want to think about the same kind of questions that arise from all personal relationships you have. 
Can I really trust God? Does God really love me? What about my personal inadequacies? Does he really know what I'm like? By the way, the answer is yes, he does. Uh, uh, here's another thing. There are other doubts you, he says you'll deal with. The gospel, about yourself, about Jesus, about God. And then he writes this. But your doubts in no way invalidate your conversion experience. You still really are a disciple of Jesus. In the midst of resurrection and in the midst of worship, some still struggle. And then I love verse 18. Then Jesus came. Jesus walks into the community, literally among them, and walks into their worship and accepts it and into their doubt. And he says these words back to this 500 people. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, all nations, all things, everything, in all times and space, everything, I mean everything is now under the jurisdiction of the enthroned Son of God. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he claimed the power to forgive sin, which freaked people out because only God could do that. He also claimed the unique ability to reveal who God the Father was fully. But now, something happens more. Jesus explicitly claims equality with God by accepting their worship and also saying that the whole universe is now for him and underneath him and by him. See, Jesus Christ in this moment of doubt and worship says to this group of people, I have universal authority. It's what Paul would later record in Philippians 2.9. Therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place and has given him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ knows that is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we all say, Amen. Amen. So Jesus says, I love this. Jesus says, because you now know who I fully am, now you know that I was dead and now I'm alive. And now you know my words have been backed up by action. Now you know I'm beyond religious leader, but I actually am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in flesh in front of you. And now you know that I have universal authority over everything, everywhere. Now I will tell you, you can go. Everywhere you walk, I want you to consider this this morning. Everywhere you walk, everywhere you go, in your life, in your business, in your travels, anywhere in the world, every place, even the darkest place, is owned by Jesus Christ. Now, with that crystal clear in your mind, Jesus says, this fear-killing, hope-inspiring, all-powerful place of universal lordship, then he says, so now all that's clear, now I'm going to give you your universal mission. So therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, all people groups, all ethnicities. Now, why this is so radical is discipleship, a Jewish idea of becoming like a rabbi, 
now transcends all ethnic, gender, and religious boundaries. All nations, all over the earth. People can now meet the only true living God through Jesus alone. And the call of Jesus to make disciples is simply the calling of all people, no matter their background, to abandon their religious ideals or non-religious ideals and to make the person of Jesus Christ their sole master, leader, and Lord. It's what Paul would say later in his earliest book, or one of his earliest books in Galatians. There is neither Jew or non-Jew, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. This isn't saying that you give up your gender or ethnicity. This is declaring that every peop- all people in all backgrounds now can access the true living God through Jesus because he has full authority to make all things right. And notice what discipleship is. Discipleship is not a thinking thing. I like this Christianity deal. It's not a commitment to a religious leader who is dead. It is not a commitment to a set of moral rules to live a better life. A disciple is someone who follows after Jesus for eternal life alone and says, I want to become like you because I know who you are. So Jesus says, therefore, because now you know all this, you go. You are sent out. You 500, you go make disciples of all nations. Oh, and you're supposed to do something. You are to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you're to teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. See, the first step in discipleship is baptism. Baptism, one wrote, is this. It's not the graduation ceremony. It's the initiation The Christian community is not divided by those who have arrived, i.e. baptized, and the rest of us waiting to get in. No, no, this is frosh week for faith. You get in this way. It is not the graduation ceremony. See, according to the Bible, God clearly intends, and actually, the one who, what, has universal authority, actually commands every person who claims Jesus as Savior and Lord to follow through in water baptism as a step of obedience and joyful declaration that you have been saved. This is what Paul wrote in Romans 6.1. So what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so grace may increase? (laughs) No way. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through, uh, through, the, glory, uh, through the glory of the Father, so we may now live a new life. For we have been united, for if we have been united with him In a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. See, baptism is what happens uh, when you say and you are declaring and you really believe that Jesus physically really died and you really are declaring he rose from the dead and that's your only hope. Baptism also reminds every single one of us that sin no longer owns any of us anymore. We don't have to sin because we have Jesus's resurrection power. Before we were saved, we could not help ourselves. Now, because of Jesus's spirit and work, we can say no to sin. It publicly and personally reminds all of us too that one day, 
day. Death does not win, and we will all be raised from the dead just like Jesus was. It is the one symbol that expresses and clarifies and summarizes our whole Christian hope that our past is covered, our future is secure, and he's with us right now. Baptism is like a wedding ring. This is the analogy we use all the time. This does not make me married, but this is a declaration that I am married. It is the outward symbol of an inward covenantal commitment. It is a declaration I am no longer on the market, unavailable. I have given myself to my wife. My wife has given herself to me. We love each other through thick and, thi- thick and thin, sickness, and, right? This is the declaration I am given exclusively to one. Baptism is the declaration I am given to no other God and no other worldview. Jesus is Lord and Savior, and he's the love of my life until I die and into eternity, right? So that's what baptism is. So every time there's a baptism, we are reminded in every stage of our life, death does not win. But here's something else really important. I have the privilege to marry people sometimes. Not me, I marry them as a pastor, good, right? And when I marry them, here's something I do. I think about the vows I made with my wife and I rededicate them every time I do another wedding. Every time you see a baptism, no matter how long you've been a Christian, that is the place where you should stop and you should recommit your vows that you made at your baptism, no matter what stage you're in. It is a declaration of hope. It is a declaration death doesn't win. It is a declaration of covenant. Oh, but there's more. See, we're not baptized into something. We're not baptized into a church or a movement or a moral philosophy. We are baptized into a name. We are baptized into a somebody. Now notice, it's pretty wild. Though there's one name singular, suddenly three names come out of the one name. And as one wrote, Jesus takes his place along with the Father and the Spirit as the object of worship and the disciples' commitment. See, this is an explicit reference to the full revelation of who God is. God is only one God, yet he is triune. As as one theologian said, within God, there are three persons who are neither three gods nor three parts of God, but are co-equally and co-eternally God. We, We worship a God that is monotheism mutated, and we're just great with it. And this also is critical because this is actually how God has saved us. We're baptized into the name of the Father who called you before the beginning of time. You're baptized into the Son who has taken your place, forgiven your sins. He has made you holy and he's praying for you right now. And you're baptized into the blessed Holy Spirit who takes up residence in you, empowers you, gives you spiritual gifts, and guarantees resurrection. Our God is Trinity. Our God is one. Our God saves us us, we are loved deeply by him, and baptism affirms the truth about who God is, and how he saves us, how he loves us, and he and his work, again, gives us hope about yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Baptism is the entrance. Ah, but then Jesus keeps going, and this is where many churches stop. Jesus says, once they've decided to become a disciple and they've been baptized, your next thing is this. You are to begin to instruct them everything I've taught you. So over a lifetime, they will begin to look like me, obedience to my teaching. Jesus said in the book of John, if you love me, he says, you won't feel good feelings about me. You won't sing great songs. No, no, you will obey me. 
See, Jesus calls us as a movement not to an outside righteousness where we do religion as evidence on the... No, no. We are called to a deep internal change that is evidenced over a lifetime more and more through obedience to God's written word. You become a follower, now let me make this clear. You become a follower of Jesus by grace alone and, and faith alone, trusting in Jesus alone. You're never saved by what you do. Baptism doesn't save you, singing, giving, none of that saves you. But the evidence that you are a disciple is that over time, you will not only hear the word of God, you will obey the teachings of Christ. This is where Savior and Lord are coming together. And Jesus says, I want you to teach people from all backgrounds everything I have taught you, and I want you to teach them to obey it. Now, of course, in Matthew, the core of this teaching is found in the Sermon on the Mount. But this is far larger than this. See, we believe that the Scriptures, the Bible, has one true fundamental author behind all the authors. Who wrote this book? Anybody? Yeah, thank you. This is not a trick question. God. And Jesus is God. And so this book becomes the standard and the final authority for faith and life and practice. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Jesus says, I want you to be people of the spirit and people of the word. And as you read my word and you continue in it, you must obey it more and more and more. So Jesus comes and he says, I'm risen And I am who I claim. And I have full authority, so I want you to go, and I want you to make, and I want you to baptize, I want you to teach, and I want you to obey. Now at that moment, I would be going, this is impossible. I would be doubting the risen Christ. You think about who's sitting in this circle. 500 men and women, all Jews, who just weeks earlier thought Jews would only be saved and the rest of the world was just going to burn in hell, that's just fine. And now the risen Lord of heaven and earth is declaring actually salvation is for all nations. They're hated Samaritan half-cousins and the rest of us. And oh, by the way, I'm going to send you out from a province that no one cares about. You have no money, no backing, no military, no state sponsorship. You have nothing. And go just do that now. But that is why the last words of Jesus matter the most. Where he says, and surely, truly, I am saying I am with you always to the very end of the age. I am not giving you a universal task with no backing. You will not have human backing. You will have heaven's backing. And heaven's backing is always better. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. And I am going to, through my spirit, walk in the community. And I will be with you personally and corporately. And I'm going to assure you and empower you. And I'm going to guarantee you'll look like me. I'm going to give you my character and my spiritual gifts. It is an impossible task, but I am involved. And as I did the impossible, being risen from the dead, so you are going to be part of the great act of history of rising nations from the dead. We have hope because Jesus has authority over all nations right now. We have hope because Jesus is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords right now. We have hope because Jesus is present at every single one of our baptisms. 
We have hope because Jesus is with us when we're learning what the scriptures have to give us. We have hope because Jesus is with us at every stage and every season as we hopefully mature and walk with Jesus in the local church over a lifetime. And we have hope as Christians because Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. That's what hope produces. Now, the question we need to wrestle down very practically today, we're about to launch the first of our three sites. We're growing, we have to ask this question, okay, what does faithfulness look like for this church in the middle of all this? What does it actually look like, very practically? Well, let me say it very practically. Number one, if you are a Christian here today, you have been saved by Jesus, and you have not been baptized, let me say this to you. You must obey and get in the tank. I remember Lori was preaching last year about baptism, and I love when she said, or last ministry year, when she said, if God prompts you, obey quickly. Delayed obedience is always dangerous to a Christian. Or, or Dave said it in his way, get your donkey in the tank. Same thing, different, different worldview. But he, the point is this. The point is this, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe you've been following for 40 years and you've never obeyed this, just declare before heaven and hell and earth and the church today, Jesus is my Savior and my Lord. I love him so much. I want to declare hope is true and resurrection is true. And like I say, every time I do this, there is no excuse, bathing suits, towels, we've, we've got everything for you, t-shirts. If you have a medical condition, we have to baptize, we will accommodate anything. We just want you to obey Jesus because where there is obedience, there is blessing and hope. So if you're a Christian here this morning and you've trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord and you've never been baptized and you've done it, for, listen, we're all, just get your donkey in the tank today, please. We want to celebrate with you, and we want to declare that hope is still happening here. So literally while I'm preaching these next few things, or during the last song, there are pastors there. They are excited. They want to hear your story. Just walk up. Don't be Canadian. Don't be, be American. Get up and go over and just start talking. This is so significant because if you demonstrate your faith, it not only encourages the community. Every time we obey, Jesus shows up in greater power and does new things. So be baptized today in Jesus' name. First thing. Here's the second thing. Let's all get serious about our discipleship. Now, I started my message by saying to everyone, especially you who are long-termers in church or especially this church, don't tune out. Okay, I'm going to say it again. Don't tune out. Because it's interesting, the longer we do church together, the longer sometimes we think our discipleship is fantastic and we've not evaluated it. So let's just not let the word discipleship lose its power. So let's ask this morning, very honestly, how is my discipleship with Jesus? How am I growing in the teachings of Christ? How do I follow Jesus in this season in 2015? Now, all churches have different ways talking about the same things. But here's what I want to ask you this morning. Maybe this is what I want you to think about. What steps do I need to take? What steps do we need to take? Or let me put a different spin on it, because much of the time it's not new. What am I already doing that actually is right and good, and I just need encouragement to keep following through on it? Well, let me say, at C4, we just say discipleship can be broken down on four things. Very simple. Four things. Here's the first thing. Get to Sunday worship regularly. Thank you. You're already doing it. Well done. 
Get to some, no, but hear this please. We gather in churches to celebrate and focus on Christ through worship and biblical teaching. When we read the Bible, when you sit under godly preaching, when you get together in Christian community, when you take communion, when we pray together. See, Sunday worship is a guaranteed place of encountering the living God. You will always, as a Christian, meet Jesus at communion, at corporate prayer, under preaching. When two or three Christians gather, Jesus says, I am actually with them. And since God God is unusually close because we're in the middle of a sovereign move of God. Why would you not be running to church week in and week out knowing that in this season he is so close? We gather together and Sunday worship is a priority in a Christian's life and it must be a priority in your family's life. We gather to worship God, meet God, know God, celebrate the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, be encouraged and be built up. It's what the book of Hebrews says. You've heard it a hundred times if you've grown up in church, but don't let it lose its power. So let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up, meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day, the return of Jesus approaching. In other words, when we gather here, whether you feel the tinglys or not, no, we gather because it is our discipleship. We gather around the living Jesus like the 500 did. Step one in discipleship, make Sunday worship a regular, important part of your life. Number two, discipleship for us, Get in a group. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, stop, stop, stop here. This is why we do sermon-based small groups in this church. I preach for a living. This is what I do. And I know, because I've read the studies, 95% of what I say is gone by the time you hit Swiss Chalet. I just know it's true. All, no, it's true. I'm not angry about it. I'm not angry. No, no, I'm not angry about it. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. It's just the way it is. And this is why, as a church, we do sermon-based small groups. Because we believe that connect groups are critical. You go with a small community, you listen to the message, and you talk about it so more of it comes home. This is where teaching comes home. This is also the place, let me say this, in a big church, 2,300 people now call C4 their home. This is a place where someone notices how your spiritual growth is going, and someone cares for you when a tough thing happens to you. See, we believe that Connect Groups is one of the primary places where you will experience discipleship. We all need to be somebody, and we all need someone in our life. The someone, by the way, has to be someone other than the pastor. Oh, let me say that again. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. I jokingly say when I'm teaching at seminary, everyone's a Protestant until there's a crisis and then everyone wants a Catholic priest. Think about it. But we're all priests in this church, yes or no? And we are called with spiritual gifts to be with each other. And so the front line for care in this church is not pastors, it's your connect group. It's the people you're doing life with. They're the front line. Then there are others. I love when Andy Stanley says, in order to grow spiritually, you have to be connected relationally. It's just a biblical truth. And that's what happens in groups. People, Lori says this all the time, people are always one tough thing away from never coming to church again. And that is why we're passionate about people getting to groups. So they're spiritually thinking through the sermon. It's being applied to life. We're praying for each other and loving each other. We all need people to see us grow in our knowing about Jesus and seeing it, see it evidenced over time. Let me put it this way. Lots of you say, uh, I would ask you, are you connected at C4? 
yeah, and you go, well, yes or no. Listen, here's the criteria. Do you have someone who notices your spiritual growth? And if a tough thing happened this afternoon, would anyone care? If you come to church every week, in and out, in and out, in and out, but you never step into community, chances are you will never experience full connection. You cannot grow in your faith by yourself. There are no cowboys in our movement. Especially some of you who've done church for a long time and been faithful. You say, oh, I've been coming to C4 for 10 years or 15 years and, and I just don't feel connected. Well, let me ask you some very blunt questions. Who's celebrating with you when you learn something new in the faith? Are you learning anything new? Who celebrates with you when you actually obey Jesus in a new way in your, in your walk? Who is actually reminding you to pray into the unique story that God is doing among us? Who's saying, are you praying Zechariah 8? Is someone even saying that to you? What small group of people are praying for you and cheering you on as you obey Jesus over the long haul? Or what group of people are saying, you know what? Your faith is getting a little stinky, a little stale. You're getting a little jaded and a little angry, and actually, it's not, that's not good for you, and it's not good for your family, and it's not good for our church. See, this is why Sunday worship and connect groups are both non-negotiables of the Christian faith. Every church, it doesn't matter their style, believe this. Acts 2 says they gathered in the temple, and they gathered in homes. They gathered in large, and they gathered in small. Where two or three gather, I'm uniquely present discipleship for us at C4 is you have an unbelievably clear picture of who Jesus is, that you make this experience a non-negotiable, that you are in regular community with a small group of people, and, and not just drinking coffee together. That's great. I'm pro No, you're actually doing life together. And here's the third thing. You serve. You've got to serve. Jesus demonstrates that the greatest evidence of obeying his word is not just knowing the scriptures, but serving and we in this church teach time and time again the best place to serve is when you know your spiritual gifts and you serve in your spiritual gifts because that is how God has equipped you to spread the gospel all over the earth. Discipleship for us is get to worship, get in a group, serve, and oh, by the way, one last thing. We have a supplement, a great vitamin. It's like a booster juice for the whole church. If you need one, take a class. We all need to grow in certain areas. We all get stuck on the journey. So to help all of us, we offer classes in this church to move every one of us on our journey. I, I sense some of you clicking out again. Stop. Take a class when you need one. They're over a short period, and they're just there to supplement your walk. So learn the basics of the faith, or go back and learn Christian doctrine, or how to hear God, or be set free from spiritual forces that hate Christ, or recover from pain. All these courses are designed to move you along the journey. And we simply hear, what we do is we just do this little thing. We break it down into four things. Seek right? We just do that. We do seek and we do discover and we grow and we guide. This, this is how we do it. You seek. I'm not a Christian yet. I'm checking stuff out. Great. We've got courses for you to think this through. Discover. I have met Jesus. I'm starting to love him. And I have so many more questions. We've got courses for you. Uh, the, the next group of people are the vast majority of us. We're in the grow stage where we do really love Christ and we depend on him, but there's so much more to be done. And the last one is actually probably a rare thing. And not because these are super spiritual people. The guide people are like, you know what? For me to live is Christ and die is gain, and I mean it. 
My life is 100% about Christ. There's no 5% out. And so we break these four things down so you can simply take a course, find where you are in the journey, and grow. So, so let me break it down like this. Discipleship in any church, but ours is like this. You have an unbelievably strong understanding of who Jesus is. That he's Lord and he's king and he's conquered death and you have hope in him. The second thing is you get baptized. You just make that public declaration. You put the wedding ring on. The third thing you do is you make the things that Jesus talks about priority. Gathered community, in groups, and you serve. And I know those things vary over a lifetime, but these three things, you take a class when you need one, and you continually are open to the Spirit of God. Now Dave, in the next two weeks, is going to talk a lot about go. He's going to talk about all over the earth and also serving, but that's the core thing. So let me just challenge you as a church. I, I'm inviting all of us to make these things a simple priority. And so I'm going to pray. And then as I pray, we're also going to get ready to celebrate some baptisms. We're literally going to see what I've just preached happen. Anyone excited to see some people get baptized this morning? It's great. So let me just pray for us. And would you be open as I pray? Lord, thank you, first of all, we have hope because you've conquered all things. Thank you that you own all things. Thank you that you're doing this all over the earth. Just thank you. And as a church right now, I pray for a vast variety of different people here. And here's what I pray. Number one, if there's anyone among us who does not know Jesus yet, may this take place. We pray this. Second of all, Lord, for any person who's not been baptized yet, Lord, may this become a very real reality. May they obey you even today. And Lord, we pray that Sunday worship, not just for number, no, no, Lord, that Sunday worship, and joining groups and serving would be at the heartbeat of this church because this is what you've asked us to do. We pray for great, growing, deep discipleship to happen. We pray, Lord, over our classes, people would know and then they'd go and be more involved. And Lord, thank you for these people who are about to demonstrate that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Thank you that we have more and more people being baptized and we pray you'd bless them as they continue or begin their discipleship journey. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said... Amen. Okay, let's welcome these people to the tank.